You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. presents Mia Farrow in a William Castle production, Rosemary's Baby, co-starring John Cassavetes, Ruth Gordon, Sidney Blackmer, Morris Evans, and Ralph Bellamy, written for the screen and directed by Roman Polanski from the best-selling novel by Ira Levin, suggested for mature audiences. Hello again, and welcome to Girls Guts in Giallo. I'm here again with my friend and guest, Luce Tomlin Brenner. Hi, Luce. Hi, Annie. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for coming back. And Luce and I did, I think, uh, I I forget how long ago that was because I everything is running together for me. Uh, it was like last December, November, yeah, or December. Yeah, we did an episode on. Uh, David Cronenberg's Crash, 
uh, one of my longest episodes, one of my favorites. And <laughs> we are back today to talk about one of the most controversial, famous, cursed, <laughs> um, important films um, of all of film history. And that is Rosemary's Baby from 1968, directed by Roman Polanski. Ooh, it's gonna be it's gonna be a doozy. Yeah, it's gonna be a hot one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's a hot one. The flames of hell encasing us. Yeah, it's. I I think I I feel like I've kind of danced around doing this episode on the podcast for a while, just because I knew that this would be very extensive and this will probably be we're gonna see how it goes with recording but I have about how many pages of notes do I have I think it was like lucky 13 the last time now, I looked at it, it says right now it says one of 17 on the first oh, wow. so there's <laughs> quite a lot of notes so this will probably be a two-parter um it's kind of like how I did Hellraiser in two parts it's one of those things that it's it deserves a lot of discussion especially over at this podcast where we're very long-winded and (laughs) make long episodes yeah you got me another professional talker so it's like the two of us are just like (laughs) totally exactly bouncing off each other before we start actually getting into the nitty-gritty of the movie. Luce, can you introduce yourself again to the listeners? Yes, hello. Uh, My name is Luce. I am a filmmaker and a comedian and a fellow podcaster. I actually just wrapped on my uh, second fully like self-produced short film called Surprise, and it's a dark comedy with horror elements, horror comedy. I say what I need to say to promote it. <laughs> I feel like there'd be some horror purists that are like, this isn't really horror. But you know what? There's a lot of death in it. So that's horrific. Uh, it's called Surprise. And it's about a group of women in their 30s who are obsessed with um, success and staying positive no matter what. And when they witness a murder, it challenges their sunny dispositions. Ooh. So... <laughs> Um, I just wrapped on that. I'm really excited about it. I just started the editing phase, so I'm hoping to premiere that with my creative partner who just finished her short, Demon Juice. We just finished filming that last weekend, and we're going to have a premiere party in L.A., hopefully in October, and then we'll be taking it around to festivals. My last short, Messed Up, was in uh, the festival circuit in 2019, won a few awards for Best Horror Comedy. (laughs) Um, And Messed Up is about a a girl whose messy apartment saves her life when a killer breaks in but can't navigate her stuff. (laughs) Love that. very autobiographical. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, my things will protect me. (laughs) My my stacks of VHS tapes clattering down on a psycho. (laughs) Obviously, it sounds like you're very influenced by this film I mean this film (laughs) for however complicated that is and we're definitely going to get into it and we're not probably not going to come up with any answers (laughs) oh no we're solving this today Annie I demand (laughs) no 
<laughs> just, you know, thoughts and reflections and discussion. But so much of feminist horror after this movie has been influenced by it. It sounds like you're influenced by it as well with, you know, set domestic horror. And when, Absolutely. <laughs> when did you first see this movie and what did you think and feel when you saw it, if you remember? I saw it. Oh, I remember. Of course. <laughs> How could you forget? I'll tell you exactly where I was when I first saw Rosemary's Baby. Because uh, I was a teenager because I was obsessed with horror fiction because I went like, Goosebumps, Fear Street, Christopher Pike, like <laughs> Anne Rice, who I know you also love. Of course. Uh, and then into Stephen King. And then Stephen King took me to Ira Levin, among many others. And so I think it was like my freshman year of high school, maybe when I read this. And then I read um, uh, A Kiss Before Dying. Is that his first one? Yeah. And Stepford Wives and the Boys of Brazil. And I just like flew through all of them and then watched all the movies. So. I was a big, like, book snob, uh, like a really insufferable teenager who was like, oh, well, you like the movie, you should read the book. Um, and it's really interesting. I'm sure we'll get into it in this case because here I have the book with me. Oh. It's such a <laughs> it's such a faithful adaptation um, where Polanski, who adapted it, lifted full, you know, parts of dialogue from the book. So it's one of the best film adaptations of a book ever. Um, and I just reread it the last couple of weeks uh, to prep for this talk. Oh, good, because so, I haven't read it in a few years. So I'm glad you reread it. Yeah, I got a lot more out of it this time. I really do think they both complement each other nicely. Like if you love the movie, the book is very similar, but just way more details because it's a book. <laughs> right, right. But, but it's it's very well done. Um, but yeah, I watched it as a teenager. I loved it. It really, I didn't like a lot of, I got more into like traditional horror and gore and splatter stuff in college, but I didn't like that kind of stuff in high school because I was um, perpetually terrified of being murdered. And so I didn't like movies that had a lot of like violence against women because I was like, this feels too real. <laughs> Every time I'd watch it, it didn't soothe me at all. Now it soothes me more, but it took some growing to get to that point. Mm. And I, I loved domestic horror and psychological horror because I felt like they were always getting at the root of reality where it was like, oh, this is what's going on in women's internal lives. Like Ira Levin was so good about writing about the like internal struggles of women, which I think is really fascinating still. Um, and so that really, even as a teenager, even though I wasn't in a, you know, domestic situation <laughs> insofar as like, I wasn't, you know, doing chore, I was doing teenager chores, but I wasn't taking care of a man or anything. <laughs> I just really felt that oppression still though, like expectations on girls and women to perform a certain way and to want to present themselves a certain way and being observed a certain way. All of that just felt very crushing to me, even at like 14 and 15. Yeah, I saw it around the same age. Uh, my friend and I rented it from a video store and watched it at a sleepover really late at night. And she fell asleep and I stayed up to watch the rest of it. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like poker? Were you like, come on? <laughs> no, I mean, she. this was my friend who was always falling asleep. So I was like, whatever, she's she's Classic. gone. Yeah. <laughs> so I stayed up to watch the rest of it. And I didn't learn until later who Roman Polanski was and what he did and what he's known for. Oh, and yeah. I, I don't I didn't know that. For no, a long I didn't time. know any of it. 
So let's get into it. Yeah. This let's is, do it. like I said, a famously cursed film. And like you said, um, it's based on a book written by the author Ira Levin, who was already a very successful writer at that time. Um, at 21, he'd sold two scripts to NBC. Uh, he had a Broadway play that garnered a Tony nod, and his first novel won the 1954 Edgar Award. Um, but in 1965, he was struggling, as always, for his next big idea, and he had to look no further than his pregnant wife in their New York apartment. He plopped every would-be parent's feelings of anxiety atop uh, this historical moment, June 1966 or 666, a.k.a. the number of the beast, as predicted in the New Testament Book of Revelations. It was also around this time that the Church of Satan was established in San Francisco, and in April 1966, Time magazine had just famously asked on its cover, Is God Dead? And we see that cover in the film as well. So Ira Levin is an atheist Jew. He writes this book filled with Catholic anxieties about good versus evil and the death of God. And it's immediately declared a perfect book, the best horror novel ever crafted, a modern masterpiece. Rave reviews ran in every paper. Truman Capote likened Levin to Henry James. And four million copies flew off the store shelves immediately. They put that Truman Capote quote directly on the cover of the book Random House did. And that was like a he credits that choice to helping him sell books. Oh, God, I'm sure. I mean, if Truman Capote endorses you. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah it's, you got to you got to put that on your cover. Uh, he would go on to write also another horror classic, The Stepford Wives, right, in 1972. So like you said, very good at these domestic women's focused horror um and then the film also received rave reviews roger ebert wrote that polanski outdoes hitchcock liz smith and cosmo called it sheer perfection variety praised everyone involved polanski had triumphed uh, mia farrow was outstanding composer christoph Komita's score was top notch and producer william castle had crossed an artistic rubicon <laughs> Uh, film critic Penelope uh, Gillette, I'm sorry, Penelope, if I'm saying your name wrong, film critic of The New Yorker, uh, described it as gynecological horror. And critic Stanley Kaufman thought the movie began as a hip comedy with mystery overtones that then morphed into a mystery with comic overtones. Hmm. Uh, by 1992, in a rare interview, Levin confessed to having mixed feelings about Rosemary's Baby, including religious guilt, which is odd to me as a fellow Jew. Uh, his work had played a significant part in all its, this popularization of the occult and belief in witchcraft and Satanism, he acknowledged, while in the same breath dismissing all these people who hear backward messages and song lyrics and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> I, I listened to a, an interview, a radio interview he did when his book, The Son of Rosemary, came out in the late 90s. And he said the same thing that he thought that he influenced like people's obsession with Satanism. Yeah, he says, I really feel a certain degree of guilt about having fostered that kind of irrationality. I just can't. I just think that's a lot to take on. I love Ira Levin, but it's like a tad 
like he's taking he's, brush, right? He's, he's like, putting a lot on himself. <laughs> this, it's as we're going to talk about, it's just perfect place, perfect time. Like it exactly. was, it was all coming to that anyway. Like the Church of Satan had been established separately from this film already. So yes. it was already. Which was very controversial at the time and continues to be controversial. Continues, absolutely. Yeah, and it it was all it was all brewing by the end of the nineteen sixties. Actually, we're gonna we're gonna get there. So, <laughs> Ira Levin wrote less and less, and he died in two thousand seven. But back to the film. Um, mm. Obviously, the film is written and directed by Roman Polanski, starring Mia Farrow, John Cassavetes, another famous director. Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmer, uh, famous stage actors, Maurice Evans, Ralph Bellamy, Angela Dorian, Clay Tanner, and in his feature film debut, Charles Grodin. (laughs) The film follows a young pregnant wife in Manhattan who comes to suspect that her elderly neighbors are members of a satanic cult and are grooming her in order to use her baby for their rituals. Do you know anything about the title? I have a a really interesting analysis of the title here. Oh, no, I've actually never even considered it to be more than what's just there. (laughs) Yeah, so Laura Jacobs of Vanity Fair, this is a direct quote from her article. What brews in this title? A slew of contradictions. Levin, who has written that he was standing the story of Mary and Jesus on its head, chose the name Rosemary, an elaboration on Mary, the Holy Mother. The name is also redolent of flower power purity, thanks to Simon and Garfunkel's 1966 version of the medieval ballad Scarborough Fair, with its botanical refrain, parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Levin set the novel in 1965-66 and made the due date of Rosemary's pregnancy the month of June 0666, the number of the beast, as foretold in the Book of Revelation. In that same year, Time magazine unsettled America with its April 8th cover story, Is God Dead?, Later that month in San Francisco, Anton LaVey founded the Church of Satan, declaring that 1966 was the year one. Words Mm -hmm. Levin used verbatim in his novel. LaVey would later be falsely credited with working as a consultant on the film Rosemary's Baby. Cults of all kinds found fertile ground in this period, including the family formed in the late 60s by the monstrous Charles Manson, who alternately envisioned himself as Christ or the devil. This was a cult that would murder Polanski's pregnant wife, Sharon Tate, along with four others in 1969. And we're going to talk all about that. So I thought that was an interesting... I never thought of the title before. I know. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, no, I'm losing intellectual points. I never... (laughs) I never I thought like, of it either. Yeah, that's yeah, why I, like, I wanted to include it because that was so interesting. Thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of religious allegory stuff is lost on me because I wasn't raised in a very religious uh, household. I, my parents are both ex-Catholics. They were both raised in big Catholic families in Ohio. In During like this time, they were like kids um, in the 50s and 60s. So that that was kind of like their experience, very similar to the character of Rosemary, who's like, thought maybe she'd be a nun and like came from a Catholic background. But then as they, you know, grew into adults, like pretty much were like, gross. I don't like it. I don't want to do Catholic anymore. So I I was raised with like no religion. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I I was raised. I mean, I could imagine that films like this or The Exorcist would be really scary to people who were raised very Catholic. Um, I I grew up hearing from my mom that like this movie and The Exorcist and The Omen scared her so much. She still considers them like the scariest movies. I think it's interesting when people talk about The Exorcist being the scariest movie of all time. And I wonder if it's because 
so many of those people were raised with like steady Catholicism. Totally, totally. Yeah. I mean, I was raised Jewish and I, (laughs) interestingly, I was, I kind of had this thought the other day because I was raised pretty religiously um, in the, in a reform sect. So not like strict or fundamentalist by any means, but with regular religious upbringing mm-hmm. and like I attended Hebrew school, I had a bat mitzvah, etc. And I was kind of reflecting on how everything I learned about Christianity growing up, I learned because we had to learn about it to understand anti-Semitism. Interesting. So, yeah. So I was telling my girlfriend about the passion of the Christ the other day. And I was like telling her about how one of my, bought mitzvah assignments we had to do community service for the temple and one of my my community service that I did was I wrote film reviews for our temple newspaper oh my god what an origin story I know it's called and the the newspaper was called the shofar and I wrote a review they dispatched this 13 year old to go write a review of passion of the christ because you know it was very anti-semitic right but I was explaining to my girlfriend that it's not like, quote unquote, blatantly anti-Semitic. It's one of those things where you have to know. It's very niche. You have to know exactly history. about the history of anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and in relation to Christianity to understand why it's anti-Semitic. And I was like, and that's, you know, and my, you know, my girlfriend was horrified that they would like send this 13 year old <laughs> to go cover this movie. And I was like, no, but they did it for a reason because I had to research and look into why this was anti-Semitic. And that's mm-hmm. how I learned about, you know, this very specific niche thing. So yeah. I had to learn about Christianity. Like we had, we used to have classes in um, Hebrew school when we would study with the rabbi where she would tell us about you know like this is the story of Jesus and like this you know because we have to learn about it to understand god that's so classic why people hate like, us <laughs> i feel yeah. like that's like with every marginalized group it's like you have to learn white history you have to learn male history it's like yes. if you're marginalized at all you have to learn the other side you learn everything about them so that you can stay safe and they learn nothing about you and exactly like perpetuate crimes against you exactly yeah so i think you know by the time i saw this movie i already kind of understood that and like knew why these images would be significant to catholic people Interesting. okay um but i didn't have like a I, I because because of being a Jew, I don't have like a visceral reaction to like blasphemy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because that's not those are not concepts in the religion. There's no heaven or hell, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. So you know, seems I mean, so much more chill. I don't know why more people aren't like racing towards that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and of course, like different sects of Jewish people like have different conceptions of those things, but like generally like jewish people don't believe in heaven or hell and it's like you get this life and you make the best of it and very healthy yeah exactly it's a very like um you know intellectual yeah religion it's very Yeah. yeah very existential you know anyway that's something that i think is also 
significant that I want to talk about while we discuss this film because this film is made by Jews. Yeah, because <laughs> Roman Polanski is also his family escaped the Holocaust. Yeah, Roman Polanski is Jewish and Ira Levin is Jewish. Um, and a lot of the character actors in this film are Jewish. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, Ruth Gordon. I mean, the, the next door neighbors are so incredibly coded Judah exactly and like growing up in New York it's so familiar to me as well and you know it's like typical like Bubba Meister neighbors Mm -hmm. Um, this feels like a really New York movie to me even though this is one of the few New York movies where the city does not play a character it's like not they're not in the city hardly at all like yeah but it but it also it also is we'll talk about it we'll talk about it yeah yeah yeah. okay great I skipped ahead I'm sorry no it's okay it's okay there's so so much to go over um William Castle was attached to the project um he wanted to direct but Paramount producer Robert Evans gave it to Roman Polanski, who had directed other successful European psychological dramas like well, Knife in the Water and Repulsion. William Castle bought the rights. Like, so he was the original. He he bought the right, the first person to buy the rights from um, Ira Levin before it was even published. Uh, can you tell the podcast listeners who William Castle is? Yes, I love William Castle. <laughs> um, you know, it's really interesting. I think this was in the documentary, so you may have seen this on the Criterion Edition. But um, so William Castle did like incredibly fun, over the top horror movies in uh, the 50s and 60s. And one of the most popular ones is The Tingler. Um, and it was so famous because he would rig movie theaters, uh, the seats, and he would put props up around the movie theaters. And so like with the Tingler, it was like a, um, uh, a centipede type creature that was like getting inside of people and that they would feel this buzz. And he rigged the seats so that they would buzz anytime the like creature was supposed to be on the screen. And he did another thing where he'd have like a skeleton fly through the air uh, during a scene with a ghost. And uh, he'd have water spray in people's faces. It was so fun. It's the kind of thing that one of those instances where I just curse myself for being born at this dumb time because how fun would it be? Cursed (laughs) timeline. I know. It's so, it's just so fun. I feel like he is one of like the ultimate showman of horror. And while there are people who definitely love his work, I feel personally that he's like needlessly maligned as being like cheesy or schlocky, which Roman Polanski says specifically in this documentary. Yes, he does. That William Castle is schlocky and in the same breath, he says, but Bill was always wonderful to me and always supported me. And I'm like, God, talk about, I, I, obviously he's a piece of shit. We know that. But like just the, the pretentious, like, uh, like just selfishness of saying something like that, like he helped you make your career essentially and you're still going to call his work schlocky and not, I, I don't know, and not give any credence to the fact that like you wouldn't even be able to be able to make like. I feel like he has the elevated horror argument of the 60s. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. Rosemary's Baby is elevated horror and William Castle films are like garbage, schlocky, straight to VHS horror, as if one doesn't directly influence and contribute to the other. Right. Um, but William Castle films are so much fun. And those were really those and like Universal Monster movies were like my introduction to horror as a child because I was I know. I think I might have said this on the last um, podcast I did with you, but my parents were really strict about ratings. So I was allowed to watch everything at like my specific age. So I didn't get to see a lot of like fun, like slashers, like the stuff that a lot of friends were watching in like the 80s and 90s. So but I got to watch all of those old horror movies, which 
while everybody thought those were stupid <laughs> when I was like 10, gave me this really great foundation for horror that now I don't have to like catch up on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, William Castle was one of the OG like interactive <laughs> movie theater guys really doing great, the damn thing. Um, yeah, exactly. The, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Matinee with John Goodman. It's from like 92 or 93. It's loosely, it's like based on William Castle's life, but it's not like an official uh, like biopic. Okay. Yeah, I actually haven't, but I've heard of it, but I haven't seen that one. I recommend it. It's really fun. It's, uh, they do a really good job of um, showing like what that kind that time period and what mm. theater growing audiences were responding to and why it was so popular. It's mm. a really fun comedy. Cool. Uh, Castle, as well as suspense master Alfred Hitchcock, was given the chance to option the screen rights to Rosemary's Baby. When Hitchcock passed on the project, Castle mortgaged his house and bought the rights for $100,000 plus another $50,000. Um, if the novel hit the bestsellers list, it did, with readers snatch snatching up 2.5 million copies before the movie's release. Polanski originally envisioned Rosemary as a robust, full-figured girl-next-door type and wanted Tuesday Weld or his own fiancée Sharon Tate to play the role. Additionally, Patty Duke and Goldie Hawn were considered for the part. But despite her waif-like appearance, Polanski, Polanski agreed to cast newcomer Mia Farrow. Her acceptance incensed her husband Frank Sinatra, who had demanded she forego her career once they get married. Fucking the thing asshole. with Frank Sinatra, and they got they got divorced on, on set. set he served her divorce filming. papers while she was filming in front of the entire cast and crew. Yeah, he was. She was supposed to be in his film, The Detective, and then filming for Rosemary's Baby went long and ended up being like three months, which is kind of unheard of for uh, films, especially like of this kind of low key nature. And um. And he, he and so she couldn't be on the detective. And Frank was like, "Oh, it's either me or it's this film." <laughs> and, and she was like, like I've "Well, been I guess shooting for three months. I guess I'll I'll choose the film." Yeah, I mean, she, and then he divorced her. Like, yeah, what a s absolute psycho. Mia Farrow is just like an interesting, tragic figure. <laughs> like she is. I was thinking that when I was watching that documentary filmed in 2012, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. It's just rough. she's been really embroiled with a lot of very abusive men. Obviously, Woody Allen, Frank Sinatra is also an abusive. Um, Roman Polanski. She's just been really involved in so many of those tangential you yeah, know, like abuse every, stories. Yeah, exactly. Like everything that was controversial in like this time period of film, she was like, let me get involved. She's one of those women that I'm like, do you have any female friends? Like, I just want... <laughs> yeah, did she have anyone who was like, um, maybe not? Yes, maybe. like, <laughs> be around more women. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, she's just so, like, um, she, like, triggers me almost because she's so, like, martyr, skinny, white woman, white knight, I white knight type martyr. Yeah. yeah. And her very, like, image is very put upon looking, too. Oh, where God, it just seems I know. Like... Just harried. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like, she'd always have one of those big plastic, like, laundry bag type purses with yeah. her and, like, a bunch of other bags. And she'd be like, <sighs> like, going down the street and you'd run into her and she'd be like, oh, my God, I just got back from the doctor and my knee. Oh, God. <laughs> Mia Farrow is triggering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
despite so oh never mind uh robert redford was the first choice for the role of guy woodhouse but he turned it down i think that's really interesting when i was looking at pictures of him from that time i actually was like oh damn i think that could have been really good that could have been good i mean john cassavetes is so good as a piece of shit Mm -hmm. um jack nicholson was also considered but polanski suggested john cassavetes who he had met in london uh, John Cassavetes, of course, if you if you don't know, was also a famous indie uh, film director. Like kicked off the like super indie film movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in casting the film's secondary actors, Polanski actually drew sketches of what he imagined the characters would look like, uh, which were then used by Paramount casting directors to match with potential actors, which I found pretty cool. I thought that was really cool. And also like the power. I wonder if you could do that kind of thing today. Everything sucks now. Like, don't, <laughs> don't let me. I'm such an old grump, but it's. I know. I, this is why we're really well mad. We'll just spend the next two hours reminiscing about times we didn't live through. Yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, you just can't do anything now because everything is so filtered through so many corporate entities. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And everybody, like, knows best. You're, the directors, I feel like, are just being brought in as, like, puppets, sort pretty of. Pretty much. To say yeah. That somebody else made it. And, like, Disney uh, didn't make this. This person made it. Like, exactly. Okay. Uh, Taika Waititi made it. We didn't make it. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile, it's all on a computer and all made ahead of time. Yeah. By, like, um, like non, non union <laughs> CGI people. Like, um, you know, side note, uh, a lot of people think that CGI is used because it's like the newer technology instead of practical effects. Um, it's just because they're not unionized. Yes, yes, so- exactly. <laughs> because the artistry that goes into practical effect, or that it looks better. And I'm like, just watch one fully CGI movie and you tell me. It it's literally just because they're not unionized and they can exploit those those artists. Exactly. It's the same reason why reality TV is so popular. It's like, oh, our stupid culture. Everyone's getting dumber because they love reality television. And it's like, well, no, those, okay. act, those people aren't union. Exactly. That's, the uh... proliferation of it speaks to less about dumbness and more about oppression and like <laughs> absolute tyranny. Exactly. Anyway, I'm yeah, sure we'll so- go on many tangents. <laughs> uh, in the roles of Roman and Minnie Castivet, Polanski cast stage actors Sidney Blackburn, Ruth Gordon, uh, Ralph Bellamy, who was also primarily a stage actor, was cast in the role of Dr. Abraham Saperstein. The production designer was Richard Silbert, who did uh, the film Baby Doll. Costumes were by Anthea Silbert, who was his sister-in-law. And her and Mia worked on the, like, you know, kind of hip flower child look that Mia has. Roman was very, this creeped me out because he's a creep, but Roman was very detailed about Mia's look, like her pregnant belly and her breasts. What about when he says, or Mia says at one point, uh, Roman weighed in many times about the size of my breasts and how they'd be getting bigger with throughout my pregnancy. And I was just dumbfounded and so impressed by his knowledge. I would not have known that myself. Like what? Mia? Yeah, it's, it's a really... I was screeching. I was like, oh yeah, was Roman Polanski really involved in the breast sizes of this movie? What a shock. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Roman... What a genius. He knows so much about What a breasts. genius. He knows so much about full milky boobs. Uh, hi, I'm also ready to weigh in on yes. that politics. Yeah, right. I'm an expert. I think I've been looking at way more. 
Roman and John, I thought this was like such a stupid detail from the doc that I wanted to include that Roman and John Cassavetes had these like Yamaha bikes that the studio got them that they used to ride around on together. And Mia was like, they're just guys. Just boys being boys. I know. They were very masculine. I know. I was like, Mia, <laughs> she was triggering me. <laughs> <laughs> They made a lot of dude jokes. They had a dude personality. Yeah, I was just like, okay, anyway. Is this your way of saying that they were like constantly pinching everyone's butts and being like, hey, baby, why don't you hop on this ride? I just can't imagine the nightmare of like doing this film with this plot and like these dudes are just just being guys. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) There's like so many scenes where he they're showing pictures of him like clasping her arms with such intensity and like I know times have changed and like lots of people were probably way touchier on film sets than now there tries to be I guess a little bit people try to be a little safer and more thoughtful but the idea of you just like grabbing somebody's arms with such force that you see the indents in a picture a photograph from the 60s (laughs) just like holding her like that totally (laughs) Uh, John Cassavetes and Roman got along really well, but there was also a lot of tension because their styles are so different. Like John Cassavetes kind of pioneered like improv in film. Um, and he was very like freewheeling and gestural and he, you know, wanted to improvise a lot. And Roman Polanski is extremely regimented and, follows exactly what he wants to do so there was tension there which was probably a nightmare yeah I thought that was really interesting because I actually I come from an improv background sorry that's a cursed sentence Um, (laughs) I come from an improv I just turn off the recording (laughs) I think I was black my note yeah you're you blocked me on all platforms (laughs) the ultimate trigger (laughs) Sorry, I have to be honest about who I am. <laughs> um, and I really, I, I, I don't perform improv as much anymore. I felt like I got what I needed out of it and moved forth. And But I do really like using improv um, in film in controlled ways. And I have definitely, once you, I work with uh, a lot of improv comedians. I write for specific people when I write and then I cast those people and because I know what they can do in their voice. Uh, and I want them to expand on what I've written in their like more natural way, which is something I was really inspired by Cassavetes, another cursed phrase. Um, and I do really like about his work a lot. But improvisers, like you really do have to, it's hard to turn it off. You really have to be like, we're not do now you say what's on the page. And like the this last, I had such great women on set. They're all so talented and all good friends. But there were definitely times where I was just like, okay, we're doing this exactly. This take is the script. And then at the very end, someone would like slip a line in. And I'm like, this is just the script. And it's like, <laughs> it's very difficult because they're just like, okay, but I'm also very funny. And I'm like, I know. That's why you're here. We know, darling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lots of head pads. Yeah. Um, with again so i can just imagine what that would be like to have like another like two directors and they're both actors and it's like just the egos on both of them they've been like circling the paramount lot and they're fucking yamahas all day and then 
you ask one of them to do a thing and I don't I bet Cassavetes is just like you're my peer I'm not taking direction from you right because they're in their dude mode with their dude jokes like just two egos like clashing like I'm surprised they probably got their dicks out and peed on each other on set <laughs> Like and Mia Farrow is just like under the streams as they're like <laughs> she's like just guys being guys pulls up her little tunic <laughs> that's why they have the pixie cut had to happen because her long hair was just filled with piss the whole time <laughs> so sorry where is this going <laughs> I am unchained I'm sorry <laughs> It's you know that's why we're that's why we love you that's why you're here. <laughs> Thanks. <Yeah>. So <laughs> I don't know if I can walk back now. <laughs> the, the we like we said the shoot was disrupted when Frank Sinatra served Mia Farrow divorce papers in front of the cast and crew. Um, in an effort to salvage her relationship, Farrow asked Evans to release her from her contract. <laughs> But he persuaded her to remain with the project after showing her an hour-long rough cut and assuring her that she would receive an Academy Award nomination for her performance, which she did not. No. Um, but she should have. She uh, she was robbed. But Ruth, Gor- Ruth Gordon won Best Supporting Actress. Yes, she did. Yeah. Which I think is interesting because she's very – she's hilarious. Like, she's a very funny role, even though she's also, like, a demented character. She's, like, I think the bright point in that movie, being funny even up until the very final scene, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I think it's so amazing because a lot of times comedic performances don't get – they maybe get a nomination, but they rarely win. Right, right. And this That's is like true. the melding of comedy and horror. Like, also, I think she might have been the first horror, like the first horror movie to get an Academy Award. Oh, that's really cool. I hadn't considered that. Yeah, because it's still only like eight. I think it's up to like seven or eight. So very rare. Uh, yeah. And this this is one of those like horror films that's in the canon of like, it's transcended horror and it's like a classic okay right yeah that's just what people say that don't want to be like attached to horror at a it's true it's a very maligned genre which is why we discuss it a lot here exactly filming was completed on december 20th 1967 in los angeles and while it was highly successful some strange curses began to circle the film for example, in April 1969, composer Christoph Kumita succumbed to a fatal brain aneurysm that stemmed from a head injury he received in 1968. At the same time, the film's producer, William Castle, was hospitalized after suffering kidney failure. And then, of course, the Manson murders happen. So it was Castle was recuperating in San Francisco and he heard about the murder of Sharon Tate, at which point he drove down to L.A. to see Polanski and promptly fell apart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it was a really horrible event um, that I talk about this extensively in my bonus episode from last month on my Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgutsjello. Uh, where my friend Mason and I talk about contemporary representations of Charles Manson and we sort of get into um, extensively more into what the murders actually entail. Um, But the short and sweet of it is that 
Charles Manson was uh, a crazy, narcissistic, malignant narcissist uh, hippie type who uh, formed a tiny little death cult out in the L.A. desert on a dilapidated ranch called Spawn Ranch. He fed his followers uh, acid and kind of brainwashed them over a period of time. And on August 8th, 1969, he convinced a group of his followers to go and murder um, whoever was at the home of producer Terry Melcher, uh, who had promised Charles Manson basically that he was going to produce his album and then did not. So they went to his house um, to go, you know, cause some chaos. And Terry Melcher no longer lived there. It was Sharon Tate and a few of her friends. And uh, she was pregnant and she was murdered. So a lot of tragedy has marked this film. Um, it, when interviewed about the murders by the LAPD, Polanski allegedly claimed that witchcraft may have been a factor in the murders. He thought he might have been the target of a group fixated on the occult ideas in Rosemary's Baby. Um, Castle would go on to claim that the entire production and its aftermath were controlled by some unexplainable force. <laughs> Polanski was a lot more skeptical. The belief in witchcraft might have been a factor, but not actual witchcraft like he thought like the people who killed her believed in witchcraft but he didn't believe in witchcraft uh nicholas shrek author of the satanic screen from 2001 about representations of satan on screen um in it he points out that the curse of rosemary's baby was mainly talked up by william castle who was well known in hollywood as a master of contriving the most outlandish publicity for his films <laughs> so which like good on him yeah like, he ex he was a horror freak and he had no qualms about exploiting the unrelated deaths to garner more attention for the movie mm -hmm. meanwhile anton levey let a rumor circulate that he had acted as a consultant to the production and at the personal <laughs> request of polanski to advise on the accuracy of its satanic detail that shit's so funny to me where it's like i'm a dark and evil satanist but also i just want credit in hollywood like anyone else yeah exactly and who also <laughs> just like, claims to be so ball. right claims to be so anti-mainstream yeah outside of everything and i'm like god the biggest fucking poser of them all exactly <laughs> he also claimed in various interviews that he appeared in the film as the devil <laughs> Clay Tanner is the actor who actually appears in the devil rape scene, and he was pretty pissed off that Anton LaVey was saying that. Uh, yeah, of course, because nobody knows the name Clay Tanner. Exactly. No thanks to Anton LaVey. <laughs> yeah, it's just not as good of a story, Clay. I don't know. <laughs> Did you see in the documentary how uh, Mia Farrow said that he was so polite that he she really liked working, like after the scene, mm -hmm. after the, the rape scene, he... he he said it was a pleasure working with you. Like, thank you so much. Yeah, as it should be. <laughs> yeah, so sweet. And yeah. she's like, I've always loved that actor. <laughs> but like, didn't know his name. <laughs> you know, she's... Poor Clay Tanner. Yeah. We love you, Clay Tanner. Yeah. Uh, LeVay aligned himself with the film, even though de the depiction of Satan goes against actual Satanist beliefs. Um, in Satanism, Satan is not a deity that demands worship. He is an aspect of everyone's personality that needs to be recognized. 
that of hedonism and indulging your desires. That's why we're both Satanists. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely a Satanist, not Church of Satan, because I hate Anton LaVey. Exactly. Um, in the late 1960s and 1970s, the weird aura of Rosemary's Baby fed into the popularity of the Church of Satan. Here was a horror film that gave the source its evil of evil its certain mystique. And people were, you know, it was a, it was controversial because bad things happen, but the perpetrators find success rather than punishment. Hmm, that's interesting. That being like an uncommon theme at that time. Right. I mean, I think it's an uncommon theme in horror generally. I actually think a lot of horror is quite moralizing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not necessarily like that now, but in the history of horror. History. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like now, especially just because the last 20 years have been so um, chaotic as far as like actual uh, shitheads winning all the time. I feel like a lot of horror has gone in that more nihilistic area because that's how a lot of people are feeling. Right. The film Satanists are affluent, cultured, older people. Um who, you know, it suggested that the, with the right exercise of will, one can achieve wealth, status, and power. If this movie were not made by a Jewish man, I would say that it was anti-Semitic. Yeah, <laughs> for real. <laughs> um, because it's like a bunch of old school Upper West Side Jews. Yeah, attacking like Midwestern wasps. <laughs> yeah, and like um, using... Blood, <laughs> baby blood. It's suggested, which is you know a classic like anti-Semitic. Yeah, exactly. Used in the Holocaust, right? To achieve you know wealth and status and control. So it's really it's just a it's weird. It's very weird because it's it's not because it was made by Jewish people. <laughs> but right, as much attention as he put into everything, it's odd that there wasn't any thought put into that aspect or maybe there was i mean how could he not he's a holocaust yeah, survivor I mean, right like it's just but it's not it's not something that i've seen talked about at all in right, any of the exactly. literature um rosemary's baby tapped into a much wider public interest in witchcraft and the occult that exploded in the late 1960s there was a slew of um occult thrillers after Rosemary's Baby, um, including uh, William Friedkin's The Exorcist from 1973, which installed the devil as the face of horror in the early 70s. Um, the dream that Rosemary, Rosemary's Baby has... <laughs> The dream that Rosemary has in Rosemary's Baby, uh, it kind of suggests that even in her subconscious, there is no privacy. And that mm. is really the ultimate theme of this film is surveillance and lack of privacy. I really like that. I hadn't thought of that before with the dream. Yeah. I love the dream sequences in this movie. They're my favorite dream sequences They're so of good. any movie. They're so They're good. Incredible. And to hear Polanski talk about it in the documentary, I really, I find it hard to listen to him because I think that he obviously is an asshole, but also I, I just don't think he's like that smart. Or he's really smart he not. He yeah, he's really not. But he acts like he has all this, um, like just 
bluff and bluster about him that I find like really obnoxious and very like European. Um, and he, but I love the way he describes the dream sequence and how like in dreams, everything is turned down and murmuring and that dreams aren't loud. And I was like, oh yeah, dreams aren't really that loud. I thought that was an interesting point. It's true. Yeah. And I, it's just so it's so good because it's not gauzy at all. I feel like modern dream sequences, there's a lot of gauziness that's like, this is a dream, but it's just as sharp as everything else. It's sort of, um, I don't know, I feel like Lynch maybe pulled some inspiration from this. Because mm. a lot of his dream stuff in Twin Peaks has that similar, like, it looks like it's really happening. So Roman Polanski is, like we said earlier, a Holocaust survivor. Um, his father was Jewish. His mother was raised Roman Catholic. Um, this has something that has been used over the years as a point of sympathy for him, um, as well as the murder of his wife. That Perhaps that's why people feel he is so beyond reproach. Um, but we have to talk about what he has done. <laughs> yes raping a 13 year old girl exactly well and can we i mean i'm sure we're going to get into this also but just the fact that like life is long and many people have terrible things done to them and do terrible things as well like nothing yes. cancels each other out and we have our brains are big enough to have sympathy and also call for action or at least like uh acknowledgement of crimes done <laughs> yeah absolutely of course um on march 11th 1977 Three years after making Chinatown, Polanski was arrested at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel for the sexual assault of 13-year-old Samantha Gailey. Gailey had modeled for Polanski during a Vogue photo shoot the previous day around the swimming pool at the Bel Air home of Jack Nicholson. Um, I don't want to mince her words because she has spoken on what actually happened, but, you know, she, kind of, she suggests that it, Polanski might have plied her with substances you know he pretty he knew what he was doing yeah um, alcohol and like champagne and pills yeah exactly like what she said right polanski was indicted on six counts of criminal behavior including rape at his arraignment he pleaded not guilty to all charges many ex executives in hollywood came to his defense uh, Gailey's attorney arranged a plea bargain in which five of the six charges would be dismissed and Polanski accepted the bargain. And as a result of the bargain, he pleaded guilty to the charge of unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor and was ordered to undergo 90 days of psychiatric evaluation. But upon release from prison after 42 days, Polanski agreed to the plea bargain, his penalty to be time served, the time he had already served in jail, along with probation. However, he learned afterwards that the judge had told some friends that he was going to disregard the plea bargain and sentence Polanski to 50 years in prison. I'll see this man never gets out of jail, he told Polanski's friend, screenwriter Howard E. Koch. Gailey's attorney confirmed the judge changed his mind after he met the judge in his chambers. Mm -hmm. So Polanski, upon hearing this, um, decided to flee the country and the day before his sentencing, he he obviously didn't go. He left the country on a flight to London where he had a home. And then he left for France. And as a French citizen, he has been protected from extradition and has lived mostly in France since then. Um, since he fled the United States before final sentencing, the charges are still pending. And he's been running ever since. 
making new movies, picking up various awards and support from his colleagues in film along the way. Mm -hmm. So in case you didn't know, that is why Roman Polanski's name is so loaded. Yeah. Uh, And so many people in Hollywood have come out in support of him, even recently. Mm-hmm. So yeah, every few years there's somebody circulating some list about like free Roman Polanski, as if he, the the issue too in addition is like they he has not been hemmed in. He's been consistently making films since then, films that are loved, like just like Woody the, Allen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't. In what way is he being persecuted or held back at all just because he can't live in America? Like, it doesn't even seem like he likes America. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. It's difficult because I also, like, am an abolitionist, and I don't also don't think that him serving 50 years in prison would have done anything. But I am curious about this, that he was um, sentenced to psychological evaluation, and that didn't happen? No, it did not. Or actually, did he complete the 90-day psychological evaluation? It didn't say when I in, in the article I read. Because that's um, what I, I mean, you know, while not being an absolutely um, trained person in this subject, I do feel like lots of, like, therapy for a long period of time and, like, maybe a, a, a slight in prison in good therapy would be good. <laughs> Yeah, that, you like, know, difficult system. That's not going to make anything better. It's only going to make someone more abusive. It's true. At the same time, as an abolitionist, I don't want people like Roman Polanski to be the first people to enjoy the fruits of abolition. That's <laughs> such a good point. No, yeah. exactly. I mean, obviously, like open the gates for every black person who's in there for weed. Yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. And a million other things. No, I agree. I, uh, that's such a good point, and it's. The people doing the work in the abolitionist system aren't doing it for, for people like Roman Polanski. Exactly, exactly. And I had a thought, but, you know, I'm a stoner, so I can only remember things for five seconds at a time. Uh, uh, it's okay. You wrote 17 pages of notes. You absolved <laughs> from anything else. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people ask themselves, myself included, when I watch this film, how did this notorious child rapist make one of the most poignant films in history about the abuse of pregnant women? How is it so prescient and so relevant constantly? It's, you know, it's Jordan Peele's, one of Jordan Peele's favorite horror films, part of the inspiration for Get Out. Yeah, um, and he's one of the few people who has said, because time and time again, Critics are like, this isn't about feminism, which I'm just like, why are you so loud on this? Like, what is the weird knee jerk reaction like towards feminism still? And and these aren't people who have valid critiques of feminism. These aren't black women. These are like men writing for The New Yorker. We're like, this isn't really a feminist film. And Jordan Peele actually is like one of the few people that's not a woman who's come out to say it's a film that is distinctly about gender and about men making decisions about women's bodies which right. to me is what it's always been like first and foremost that's where the horror comes from and when people are also talking about it not being a horror movie uh, I think it's interesting because I'm like well it seems like you don't have much at stake then because I think that this along with Stepford Wives are like two of the scariest movies ever made because it feels so easy like it that it could happen and, and not the devil but 
just the, the aspect of the the intensive gaslighting by many, mm. the cabal that men get into. Yeah, the gaslighting is really intense in this movie. So I think, you know, with that, I think I'm finally ready to get into the plot 56 oh. minutes into our recording. <laughs> oh, are we talking about this movie? Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> so we immediately open with that opening shot of Manhattan with that incredible font that that mm. pink swirly font which Gorgeous. is really intentional also Roman Polanski was very intentional about everything in this film and it makes it deceptively seem like a fluffy women woman's picture um of the time with that font a uh, couple of things the 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 lily fountain at the beginning could not find the sculptor of that lily fountain but it's amazing <laughs> gorgeous i know i want it yeah we meet rosemary and guy woodhouse uh they're looking for apartments this is the first instance of rosemary like listing guys acting credits like Which always she does like four or five times yeah, in the movie yeah always trying to plug him there's this scene where they go to the apartment house um, called the Bramford. Um, it's the it was it was actually based on the Dakota building in New York. So, Luce, can you describe the Bramford to us? Now, it's a goth kid's dream house. It's so beautiful. It's it's tall. It's foreboding. It's like a dark sandstone. It's got a peaked roofs roofs, kind of like um like the Adams family roof. Uh, it's got gargoyles and like little uh, architectural details. And it's seemingly it has like an overlook kind of vibe where it's like just looks endless from the outside. And then once you're inside, it has sort of this charming, like, dilapidated, like, was wealthy at one point, but then was never kept up. So it has beautiful tile that's broken in some places and really gorgeous walls that are, like, water stained and cracked. Uh, it's honestly, it's like my favorite style, which was like, you know, 40 years ago, we were wealthy and uh, we haven't had anything since. Like, Grey Gardens vibe. Yes. Very old New York. Um, mm -hmm. It's just an incredible apartment building. I always wanted to live in that building when I was. Did you in, go there? Like, did you see it when you lived there? Um, no, person? I just always like admired it in the movie. Um, mm. I'm actually surprised I never went to go see the Dakota because I love the building so much. Um, I know I've never gone to see it either. And I was just thinking this last time I was watching and I was like, the next time I'm in New York, I'm going to that building. Totally. <laughs> doing some oh, Rosemary cosplay. <laughs> yeah, it was built in 1884. Um, it's wow. on 2nd Street, 72nd Street and uh, Central Park West. So I've probably passed it many times and <laughs> just didn't just know didn't what I was know. passing. Yeah. There's this scene when they're in, when they first get into the apartment building where they go into the elevator and there's this black man who is the elevator operator. And I, I haven't read the book in a few years, but I know that there is something about this character in the book. And I was wondering if you could tell, refresh my memory, because it feel, I feel like it was important. Yes, there's actually, I really thought this part was interesting too, but they talk about how he's got like a, it's not this verbiage exactly, but it talks about him having a, um, 
like plastered on smile um just basically how he doesn't stop smiling and it it felt like a um a foreshadowing of just this like you are playing a part so that people don't turn on you and like you're in danger and you have to act a certain way um uh i can't i can't find it exactly they do also and i guess this is the language of the 60s but they do use the word negro the entire time they like do every time they're yes. talking yeah um which i was like that still feels so dated for the 60s um i'll keep looking and when i find the exact word i'll tell you oh uh yeah every time they talk about this character uh he's smiling and then blo a couple lines he's still smiling uh every time they talk about the elevator man they talk about him smiling and doesn't rosemary have she has like some internal thoughts about him that we don't get in the movie mm, that's, that's a good point all right let me look at that and i will get back to you sure yeah <laughs> um so they're looking at this apartment in the Bramford, and the woman who lived in the apartment has just died, and the the realtor is telling them this. And they go into the apartment, and Rosemary, this is when Rosemary first, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this film. Rosemary first sees this note scribbled on the, the table that says, I can no longer associate myself but it like trails off. There's lots mm -hmm. of witchy herbs in the apartment. It's a very like gothic kind of opulent living room. Um, and Rosemary loves it and wants to move in. There's also this chest of drawers that's covering what seems to be a closet and Guy and the realtor move it. And they open the closet and there's like nothing in there worth hiding. So... They don't know why this chest of drawers was moved in front of this closet. Very ominous. I'm yes. scared of secret doors. It's yeah. like one of my biggest fears whenever, every time I've looked at a new apartment, if there's like a tiny door or a door in a closet, I'm like, nah, not for me. Totally. It's really creepy. They go to have dinner with their friend Hutch, who's like their neighbor in their old building. And he is like a charming older man who used to write adventure stories for young boys. Um, and Hutch tells the couple about the the history of the Bramford um, and the Trench sisters and um, somebody named Adrian Marcato. And apparently they, they were all, you know, evil people who thought they were witches and they were said to have eaten children and Hutch tells them that the building is cursed famously cursed and there's a lot of deaths there so of course Rosemary and Guy move in at night <laughs> and <laughs> they hear this is when they first hear Minnie and Roman next door very New York right always hearing your neighbors arguing <laughs> the couple eats dinner on the floor in silence and then they have really bad mechanical sex yeah that scene i was i was expecting to be hot and then it's like just not oh it's like, awful yeah it's such a bummer it's such a wasted opportunity <laughs> yeah it's i mean it, i guess it shows the the kind the level of intimacy that they have with each other which is like not great yeah, that there's no passion. Yeah. They just both undressed the, undressed themselves in like a really awkward way. Like they've never taken on, taken off clothes before. Yes. Um, 
there's really great camera work, like the close-ups of their bodies, which is going to be repeated in the rape scene. Mm-hmm. Um, in the light, and Mia Farrow of- didn't want to do any of the nude scenes. So no, there's a body she double. did not. There's a body double. Yes. In the light of day, Rosemary redecorates. Um, she watches really intently for Guy's commercial to air on TV. She's his biggest fan. She's his. <laughs> It would woman. be so cute if you didn't know what was coming. You'd be like, what a supportive partner. <laughs> totally. But it's already like he's not – it's already one-sided. Like she yeah, exactly. is so supportive of him. He is – And her only ambition is what – we don't know a lot about her other than that she like loves decorating and has right. like a lot of plans. Right. Yeah. Um, she symbolically wallpapers the newly exposed closet. Um. Rosemary goes down to the basement to do some laundry, and this is when she meets a woman who resembles the actress Victoria Vectory. Is that a real actress? I don't. Yeah. So the the that was the real woman playing her. What? I had no idea. Yeah. So she's credited under a different name because that actress was a model first, and so she's credited as her like her model name. And then when she became an actress, she changed her name. Um, so that's really her. <laughs> that's so funny. But in the book, it's a different, it's a different woman. It's like a different actress. Mm. So she tells Rosemary that she's staying with the cast of Vets, Minnie and Roman. Um, their apartment used to be the back of hers. Uh, Minnie grows herbs. Rosemary name drops Guy again. This scene says a lot about Rosemary's character, I think. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. She's like kind um, to this woman and very warm and very fixated on her husband. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Also, just like really ready to be friends. Like you can tell that like she misses her friends. Like we don't see Rosemary's friends again, like ever until about halfway through the movie. Mm -hmm. And that's when you start to see her internal life a little bit more. So you can tell that she's ready to like start rebuilding you know her own sense of her own life but is also still just the only thing she's doing is whatever he's doing right now right right uh the woman terry the cat says the cast of vets are the most wonderful people in the world they picked her up off the street and she was an addict Mm-hmm. And she says offhandedly, which is so sinister if you know what's coming, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. They were like, she has no one. Mm-hmm. Um, she offhandedly mentions her brother who's in the Navy. That night, Rosemary and Guy hear Roman and Minnie arguing. Um, they start kissing, getting ready to have sex. And they hear this like chanting next door. Uh What's going to happen? <laughs> it's so weird that they don't talk about that. Because, like, when you live in apartments, you hear your neighbors. But I would say that straight up chanting would make me pause. Straight up chanting would make me freak out. <laughs> yeah. But maybe it's because I've seen this movie. I don't know. I, <laughs> That's true. Maybe, maybe in 1968, people were like, whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 1968. I don't know. Well, yeah. Rosemary's whole thing is she does like not want to interact with the neighbors. And Guy is the one who very much wants to form a relationship with them. Well, it turns, right? Because mm-hmm. at first, Rosemary is the one. So they... The, the next thing, the, the way that they meet Rose, uh, Minnie and Roman, 
is that they're coming home and they see that Terry, Teresa, the woman that Rosemary was talking to in the laundry room, has committed suicide by jumping out of the window of their building. Um, and that's when we meet the cast of Ets. Can you describe the cast of Ets for us? Oh, they're wearing clothes. I feel like I picked out myself for my own look. Like just the loudest. Um, she's got an incredible, colorful polyester dress on. She's got like a big floofy hat a big white hat that sort of seems like the inside of a coconut um a great handbag and then he roman is in like a pink suit and a bow tie and like a real like kicky fedora and they just look like the kind of like old people i want to become <laughs> and also how i dressed in college <laughs> yeah like kooky 60s older new yorkers um, they're just like immediately such a presence. Honestly, mm -hmm. the best characters in the film. Yes. <laughs> like Ruth Gordon is everything. I mean, she's just Perfect. immediately like. Bright blue yeah. eyeshadow, really bright blush that's not rubbed in at all. Bright lipstick. Yes. Incredible. <laughs> she's like, no, she was all alone when the police are talking to her. She's just like such a loud Jewish woman. She, she reminds me no a lot of my family. She has no one. And then yeah. Rosemary interrupts and says, like, she has a brother in the Navy. She's just, like, such a contrast to her. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, yeah, because Rosemary also is from Omaha, but sounds a little British. Like, her elocution, is that the word? Like, it's just so, yes. like, oh, well, uh, well cause she Mia, does yeah. have a brother. Right. Well, <laughs> Mia Farrow herself, like, comes from generational wealth right, like very right. upper class background not so it's just a rich accent yeah. <laughs> it's just a rich person <laughs> well i've never heard it in real life yeah. <laughs> um so that's when they meet the cast of vets um and in bed rosemary is obviously disturbed by the events of the evening as guy sleeps soundly because he's a moron <laughs> this is He's like let's forget about it like, can you imagine if you saw somebody you just started making a friendship with she didn't only kill herself she threw herself off the seventh floor of their building you see a crushed car so she hit the car the car is covered in blood and the whole half of her face is all like smashed and not smashed you know you can really do that in the 60s but like essentially in the book it calls the half of her face pulp and they both see it and then he's like let's forget it <laughs> I also forgot that to mention years of therapy. Right. <laughs> I forgot to mention that when they're in the laundry room, um, Terry shows Rosemary her necklace, which is like a charm that Minnie and Roman gave her that smells bad, that mm -hmm. has like some kind of herb in it. So that will become very important later. Mm hmm. So this is when also Rosemary's in bed that night and she has her for the first dream sequence. Um where she sees this nun. I really, hold on, I'm just trying to find my notes. Oh, there's a nun with Minnie's voice because the voice from next door of them arguing is carrying over into the dream. Um, and, you know, the argument is like, I knew we shouldn't have told her. Like, we don't know exactly what they're talking about, but we think it's about Terry. Mm -hmm. Um. It's just so good stylistically. Like that mm. is exactly what happens in a dream when you can hear something and it gets incorporated yeah. into the dream. And it's like a nun in her dream. The nun is saying it and she talks the character 
um, Rosemary talks about how she wanted to be a nun. And in the book, she has like regular dreams about uh, nuns and Catholic school. Yeah, and she mumbles something to herself, like Sister Veronica said, "I broke the window." Like she's yeah. talking to herself in her sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, next day, Minnie comes calling, and she immediately invites herself in and begins talking Rosemary's ear off about Terry. <clears throat> but she's also getting information from Rosemary and being a gigantic yenta. Uh, <laughs> she finds out that Rosemary wants to have three children. It's all very like calculated and it also is exactly what it feels like to be interrogated by an old Jewish lady um just going for the going for the jugular you got to be prepared for that (laughs) uh Minnie insists that Rosemary come to dinner and Rosemary greets Guy enthusiastically when he comes home but he's in a shit mood because he didn't get the part in a play he auditioned for yeah and, and it's like this other guy that he thinks he's not as good, uh, David Brom. Daniel Baumgart. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was like the non-licensed version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shows, Rosemary tells about Minnie's visit and like how nosy she is. Guy does not want to go to dinner. That is perhaps the ultimate irony of the film, right? Mm-hmm. That guy never wanted to go to this dinner. And then, so interesting. Right? And then it completely changes. Like, what does it say about, like, Rosemary sealing her own fate? Or, like, you know. Right. Like... Exactly. And and I think there's something to be said for the ways in which, because Rosemary doesn't want to go either, but it's 1966, and she's hemmed in, in the ways that I think a lot of women still are, to this idea of politeness and um, like neighborly expectations and the ways in which we tamp down our needs and desires and put, you know, and, and put someone else's in front of ours under the guise of politeness and friendliness and like, oh, we're just being good neighbors where it's like, okay, but what do you want to do? You don't want to go to the dinner? Don't go to the dinner. They right. invited you and you can just politely decline and send over a back- basket of muffins if you have to make it domestic, you know? Totally. <laughs> but, so I think it's interesting because it's like Rosemary has this hand in her eventual demise, but it's not its not even her choice. She is clearly also playing along by societal expectations at that point already. Yes. Yeah, Totally. So Rosemary and Guy do go to dinner and the Castavet apartment is pretty much exactly like how their apartment was before Rosemary redecorated it. How yeah, would you very de- dark. Yeah, how would you describe it? Uh very dark. Um walls are bare. There's not a lot of furniture. All the furniture is pushed to the edges of the room in an odd way. Uh things are like black and brown and gray. And then an important thing that Rosemary notes when they get home is that there is no art on the walls, but you can see the outline of where things might have been hanging. And there's just no details. There's no books. There's no tchotchkes. And for people who clearly have lived in this apartment their whole life, it's very odd. They're clearly not minimalists by their personal styles. Right. So there's just like something is missing. It seems like they just moved in, even though they haven't. Right. Yeah. And we learn a lot about Minnie and Roman as characters, as people in this scene. Like Roman lambasts religion. They both do. 
Um, you know, Rosemary says she was brought up Catholic and she feels weird about disrespecting the Pope. Um, it just, you know, again, like just really <laughs> reminded me of being around old Jewish people and then being like, and the money they spend on those gowns and robes. Like that's literally something that somebody would say, but it's like coming from who we know is a Satanist. But they're also seen like this not wrong. Times. They're also like not the wrong. Whole, yeah. Like this whole dinner, I'm like, this seems fun. Like they seem fun. I'm taken in. I would give birth to a Satan baby for them. Like I'm, clearly, I'm into them. Like, they're great. Yeah, their fashion is so good. Minnie has one of the coolest dresses I've ever seen on, which is like a a four paneled dress. It's like white and it has like these wavy colors, and like each panel is a different color. And it's just such a cool outfit. And they they already have drinks ready when they get there. And they're like, this is a vodka blush, which I'm not a big cocktail person. I don't know what a vodka blush is, but I wanted I want to it. make one. I want like, it. yeah, I was like, how fun would that have been if we were the kind of like prepared domestic goddesses who were like, oh, and during our podcast, we're drinking vodka blush. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, the other thing about them is like they're old, but they dress like in the fashion of the day. Mm-hmm. Like the, they're, they're really with it. They travel a lot, which yeah. is like really fun, and like they're really cultured. Yeah, like are we? Is this bad? Because yeah, <laughs> I know. Like it seems like the argument you're making is that Satanists are the height of culture, and I yeah. must agree. <laughs> uh, this is when Roman like very intentionally flatters Guy. By saying when he saw him in a play, he was he was struck by a gesture and he checked the program to see who he was, that he has an interesting inner quality. <laughs> Isn't that just how you charm an actor? That was so funny. This was I was I watched it with my boyfriend, Isaac, and this was the first time that he had ever seen it. And I was so excited for it because he hadn't read the book or anything. So he's not a big horror person. And I'm on this constant mission to show him he's jumpy. So <laughs> to show him horror, that's like, you know, it's not at all like it Pennywise jump scares, you know? <laughs> Right. Um, and so we were watching it and he goes, oh, an inner quality. I feel like everyone you're around is always talking about that inner quality. <laughs> Truly. So like obnoxious comedians. He's like, that would work on half the people, you know. <laughs> it would. Like, like, oh. it's, it's He's a- like, I better remember that next time I'm at a show and I need something to tell someone. I'm going to talk to them about their inner quality. <laughs> it's true, though. Like, he knows so exactly funny. what to say. Oh, I know. But it's so it's so annoying how transparent it is and like that it works. It's just so like it just makes me hate him from the beginning, even though I know what's coming. It's like, how dare you be flattered by such an obvious reach to flatter you? I absolutely loathe Guy. And every time I watch this film, I hate him in new and exciting ways. Yes, that's what really got me because I don't know if I've watched this movie since I moved to LA and the amount of accuracy because it, it felt a little heavy-handed to me when I was younger and I was thinking about that when I started watching it and then I was like oh wait no it's just that Roman Polanski knew yeah he knew <laughs> actors he knew that that would be that would be the thing and Roman also implies that he has trouble getting roles so mm-hmm. as R- Rosemary and Minnie are watching them yeah <laughs> As Rosemary and Minnie are washing dishes at the that the men chat, 
this is when Roman gets Guy's ear for the first time. And we don't know what they talk about because Rosemary doesn't know. We experience this entire movie through her. We know what she knows only. Mm-hmm. Which and- I think is really like radical because there weren't a lot of movies from female perspectives at that time. And even though it's being, you know, it was written and directed by men, it still is like her perspective and it doesn't feel like a man's, I don't know, thought of the way a woman would be acting. I think it, it feels as realistic as I would think it would having not lived in that time. Right. I When I was watching this with my girlfriend, you know, we were stoned, obviously, and she was like, wait, am I missing things? Like, I don't, what is happening? And I was like, you don't know, because mm-hmm. she doesn't know. Yes. So, and that's the, the horror thing, of and it. And we were not stoned last night. <laughs> <laughs> and he was just like, wait, but what's going on? And I was like, I know what's going on. Exactly. <laughs> I know. I'm the same way. I'm like, I'll never tell. I, I know. I, it must be insufferable, but I mean, Oh, they hate it. I know. <laughs> People he's be- like, you've told me multiple times this is one of your favorite movies. And I'm like, he's like, at the end, do we figure out what's going on? And I was like, I don't know. I'm the <laughs> same way. I'm like, I don't know. I guess you'll just have to see. Yeah. You know, because <laughs> is the same way where she hasn't seen a lot of horror movies, right? So yes. it's fun to get to be like, oh, my God, I never thought I'd get to show Rosemary's baby to somebody for the first time. It's like exactly. No, so thrill. I absolutely refuse to give anything away. I'm like, we'll see. Yeah, I'm like, this is entertaining for me in two ways. Exactly. <laughs> Wait, do you do the thing where you like turn and, and watch her? Yes. Oh, You're absolutely. Like- I love it. Oh, my God. I'm a creep. Every time I show <laughs> movies to people, I'm like watching them half the time. I'm like, <laughs> I'm imagining this scenario where like the four of us watch a movie together and they're in the middle and we're on the ends. So we're just like just like, staring like, at them. Staring and then like winking at each other like. <laughs> I know. I'm such a fucking creep about that. I must be so <laughs> annoying. Uh, so at home, the couple giggles about how like weird their neighbors are. To which Tashane, my girlfriend, was like, "They're fucking rude as hell. They just had them over for dinner." She's not wrong. <laughs> well, and they already know. They've already talked about multiple times how the bedroom is a partition and it's the back half of the Cassavetes house. So it's like you have already heard the Cassavetes talk so many times and now you're going to sit in bed and be like, those fucking idiots. Like, right. They can hear you. Right. <laughs> but even though Guy is mocking the cast of Etz. He already has plans with Roman for the next evening. The way Even- he pivots from making fun to being like, well, you know what? I am going to go over tomorrow and hear some more of those stories. Right. Even They're though- such fascinating stories. Even though they were supposed to hang out with their friends. Yeah, we'll mm. see them next week. Like, wait, what? We have plans. What do you mean, what do you mean next week? I got to look at my calendar again. Yeah. <laughs> Rosemary also, like you said, she noticed that the pictures were down in the apartment. She's very focused on detail, which I feel is also like a very realistic, quote unquote, feminine quality. Yeah, it's almost like she's protecting herself and doesn't realize it. You know, she's always gathering like she sees the herbs when they first go into Mrs. Gardenia's apartment before they they've leased it and it has all the old woman's stuff in it. She notices the herbs. She notices that writing. She's taking in every single thing about it and anything that she's like, "Hmm, this is odd. He, guys like nah seems fine to me old people yeah and she like, doesn't which, she doesn't trust herself which ultimately is part of her downfall because everyone around her is telling her yeah where it's exactly. like you can only 
how can you tr- trust yourself when the person that you're supposed to like love the most who you think of as a partner so you you think they think of you as a partner but they don't so like how are you supposed to trust yourself if the person who knows you the best is like no you're wrong or you're overthinking it yeah like exactly. that's so classic exactly this is a honestly a model of gaslighting this film and I wonder if it's in part inspired or takes from the actual movie Gaslight um, Mm. for which the term gaslighting comes from that's Uh, interesting yeah that's more of a noir film but it is pretty scary still I haven't seen it in a long time it'd be a cool maybe back to back it would be Right? It's just the way the guy acts is so much in line with how that character acts. That's true. I mean, Polanski really liked noir, so I wouldn't exactly. be surprised, right? right? Like, yeah. Because even though that's in the book, for sure, there's a, a gaslight. There's a quality to gaslighting that is so much in the delivery that you would have to have some awareness of what that looks like, right? So next day, Rosemary is trying to read a book quietly at home, but Minnie forces herself in again with uh, a new person, a new old lady, Laura Louise in tow, one of the best characters. I love this woman. Yeah. Rosemary says she doesn't feel well because it's the first day of her period. Important. Mm -hmm. Minnie and Laura Louise park themselves right away and start knitting and, um, Minnie. Laura Louise sits directly on top of a book that Rosemary was reading that's like laying face open and it's one of the funniest things in the movie to me. <laughs> yes. Like she keeps rearranging herself but never gets off of the book. Just yeah, that's up. there's so many of these like funny elements in the film. Um Minnie gives Rosemary the charm necklace, the same one that uh Terry had. That she, like, died in. Yes, that she fucking died in. It's so morose. Like, I, and I love dark shit, and that would be too much for me. Totally. Like, I'd be like, nah. like, nah, I think I'm okay. And Still it's, seeing her bloody face every night. And right. <laughs> it still has this, like, smelly root in it, This t- um, what, which uh, Minnie calls tannis root. Um, so Mia tries not to – Mia. Rosemary tries not to accept it. Um, but Minnie insists, uh, Rosemary tells Guy that she doesn't want to wear the necklace and Guy is such a fucking dick. Um, and he like weirdly insists that she do, um, which like, I can't imagine like that's, that's like such a red flag too. Like you didn't give it to me. Why do you care if I wear it or not? Exactly. Guy gets a phone call. The actor who got the part over him, uh, Donald Baumgarten, has suddenly gone blind. And a totally normal thing that happens. People just wake up one th- day. That just happens, right? Blindness. Right. Yeah. And just c- crazy. They happen to need Guy now to fill the part. So weird how that happens. Yeah. What a cool coincidence. <laughs> Rosemary visits Hutch and cries to him about Guy being a dick to her. Like she knows something is off. Like mm-hmm. he, he was a dick before, but he's like even more now. <laughs> New levels of dickishness. Hutch brings up the suicide at the Bramford. He knows about it. Uh, Rosemary comes home to Roses and Guy saying, I've been a creep. Notice how he never actually apologizes. No, he's just he's acknowledging without being sorry. <laughs> yeah. And he's then he's just like, let's have a baby. I've already figured it out. 
and he put the date on the calendar of when they need to start trying. Which, like, again, I, I love a man that can notice a cycle and is, like, on top of it. But in this instance, when has he ever tracked your fucking period before? Right. Like, and now he's, like, circling dates. It's just, like, this doesn't align with the rest of the way that he hasn't been interested in you or your internal life. And and now, suddenly, he's he's circling your ovulation periods. Like, that just is so, ugh, so creepy to me. It's real creepy, but Rosemary is really happy because that's what she wanted. And she hangs out in this, their date night to, to start making a baby. Mm. Um, she's hanging out in this great red oh. outfit, which I absolutely need right away. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so good. And this like romantic night by the fire and um, guy can't even really be romantic because he sucks. And <laughs> <laughs> They have this candlelit dinner, um, and Minnie, of course, comes over with her chocolate mouse, <laughs> and in gives them this chocolate mousse to eat. And when Rosemary tries to eat it, she says it has a chalky undertaste. And Guy basically bullies her into eating the chocolate mousse. Immediately gaslights her. No, it yeah. doesn't. There's no chalky undertaste. Like, yeah, immediately, if- immediately. Palettes yeah. aren't different at all. Gaslighting is such a, is a term that is so misused nowadays. And if you really want to understand what gaslighting is, watch Rosemary's Baby or Gaslight. Yeah, because it's it's, exactly what's happening isn't happening. Exactly. That's what gaslighting is um pretty straightforward it's not just like i feel like now, it's not like just lying it. yeah. yeah like i don't like you're making me feel bad so you're gaslighting me <laughs> right right or like you have a different perspective on what happened between us so you're gaslighting me right um, people don't like the way that like neurology like works so they're, they're like oh it's gaslighting your brain is differently patterned than mine right right whereas gaslighting is more like um I gave you money and you used it to buy drugs. And the person is like, no, I didn't. You're crazy. Even though they yeah. did. That's like I used it to buy food, but they're like currently doing coke in front of you. Like, yeah. This is dinner. And there's I'm no food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's more akin to what people experience as gaslighting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of my I'm always I feel like I'm always talking about that on this podcast, just like the the way that gaslighting is overused because it's like is such a useful term. Um, and it is a thing that happens and is like the one of the more subtle forms of of abuse that I think people who are maybe they're not maybe they're in relationships that don't escalate to physical abuse. But uh, there are a lot of relationships that are like essentially living in like gaslighting territory for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And I've been I in some. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Same. So it's like it's it's really sinister. And I don't know if it's because we see so much of it in horror or like the situation like you know, anytime you're outside of something and you're like, well, it couldn't happen to me because I'm currently not under any duress. So I can like logically think through how I would do things. Uh, so I think people see the kind of things in movies and they're like, yeah, well, I would never. If somebody told me something wasn't true, you know, completely forsaking the the idea that like when you're in love or you're like with someone all the time that like, yeah, what they say matters to you. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like, I guess there isn't a chalky undertaste. And then- <laughs> yeah, and it's like, yeah, maybe I complain too much or I'm always complaining about food. Like, right. oh, yeah, oh, I'm, I have bad taste in food. He has great taste in food. I should listen to him. Like, 
fucking do that. People do that to themselves all the time. Yes. So it's very like, I actually think even though this is heightened to a supernatural place, that the way that Guy and Rosemary's relationship unfolds is extremely like disturbingly realistic oh for sure and that it's actually quite difficult to watch if you've experienced something Mm -hmm. similar um so but as soon as guy turns his back she dumps some out some of most of the chocolate mousse but that is why she only she only eats some so she's not Mm -hmm. fully drugged in the next Mm -hmm. scene Mm -hmm. so the next scene is the most famous scene of the film um it's probably the most the, the scene that's most upsetting to people because it is a rape scene. So I just want to preface that before we talk about it. Um, Rosemary gets really woozy um, as Guy is just kind of planted in front of the TV yelling at a baseball game like a fuck. <laughs> I really hate him. <laughs> Did he also watch one of his own commercials during yes, that scene? Yes, yes. And... Rosemary collapses and Guy leads her to the bed. And now Rosemary. And then she collapses again. He's like holding her and then lets her collapse again on the floor while he's like supposedly walking her to the bed. I really. Worthless. Worthless. (laughs) Now we get Rosemary's dream. There are so many striking images. I love this dream sequence. I think it's really beautiful i don't find this scene to be disturbing because it doesn't feel like uh, or i don't know rape's different for everybody but like it's not a traditional rape scene it's not like you see somebody like struggling and being held down and screaming there's it's a lot more um supernatural feeling and i think it's like really psychedelic and interesting to watch yeah the rape scene itself isn't what's upsetting to me it's the before and after that i find upsetting yes that's so well put yes i agree Yeah, it's like Guy leading her to the bed and we know something is off. And And, undressing her. Yeah. And she's like, why are you doing this? Yeah, so Rosemary, like, she envisions herself in the dream on this mattress in the ocean. Um, The sound is like a clock ticking. She's on a boat surrounded by very chic 60s people. (laughs) Um, There's this moment where the boat captain turns from young to old. Um, guess he went to that beach, right? Oh, God. Just shoot me. I know, seriously. Why are we still talking about this two weeks later? Um, she feels Guy, like, taking off her clothes. And she, yeah, like you said, she's like, why are you doing that? And he's like, I'm just getting you, getting you ready for bed. And then she suddenly feels herself naked on the boat. But then she's in this bikini. <laughs> and she says to the boat captain, is the boat captain supposed to be JFK? Yes, I think yeah, so. And he sa- she she says, sees Jackie at some point. Too. Yeah, yes. And she says, isn't Hutch coming with us? And he says, Catholics only. I wish we weren't bound by these prejudices. <laughs> um, He takes her wedding ring off. Mm. Guy does in her sleep. I think that's really gross, too. Like, that feels extra sinister to mm-hmm. me. Because it's like you can pimp her out like this, but you want to make sure that like it doesn't have any impact on your marriage because then it's connected to you somehow. Yes. Um, He's naked. She is naked at one point under the Sistine ceiling, like um, 
on one Beautiful. of those right on one of those Would like, rafters <laughs> yes yeah. that I found that to be really like a sensual moment it is well that is and it's exactly how Michelangelo painted the Sistine ceiling is he was on one of the like very close to the mm-hmm. but not naked no, I wish. But no. Okay, because I was like, I thought you were about to unveil that he painted the whole thing naked and my brain was about to implode. <laughs> I was no. like, I love this podcast, always learning. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, no. Um, but it, she, and she also hears again, like fragments from dialogue, like easy, you've got her too high. Um, the, there's a sailor on the boat who I want to say is the same actor as the elevator operator because it does seem like it. Yeah, yeah because cause... he's it's like you know this recurring character um, that is like carrying over into her dreams. And I believe in the um, book, it's the same. It's supposed to be the mm-hmm. same person. Mm-hmm. And he says, "You better go down below, Miss." And Rosemary lays on this like bare mattress in the center of what is now her living room surrounded by all these older naked people like many which i had forgotten that part and i was like oh man hereditary got so much credit for that and that was a direct steal from rosemary it's a direct steal yes exactly and we could go off on so many tangents about the horror of the old woman's body um Mm. you know yeah right what is more disgusting right like in rosemary's baby in hereditary um in the witch mm-hmm. like so many of these films oh midsomar mm-hmm. like so many of these films use like the the body of the hag as like a point of horror and it's always like satanic because it's implied that like you know it's like dorian gray right like right like evil like- corrupts your soul and that comes um out physically which is right. why that idea is why we discriminate against um, people we consider ugly or people with deformities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, very Christian yourself, idea. Right. Right. You let yourself age or be ugly, then you are related to a, the devil, if not a demon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I always enjoy seeing na- older people naked in film. Absolutely. Because uh. you're like, we're all fucking headed there. Sorry exactly. If you don't think that's happening for you but right. like I'm, it's nice to be prepared instead of shocked exactly and like embrace it as a different kind of beauty um yes yeah, need some more horny old movies right which uh, is why i feel like the beach the old is not actually about that although <laughs> it's really missed opportunity side note i want to see old i haven't seen it yet um Same. but i do I, I, it's like I'm almost like kind of scared to see it because I do feel a way about people acting like being old is the most horrific worst thing, thing that, that could, could happen, happen to, you. to you. Yeah, because we're all heading there. I mean, I guess that's what the horror of it is we're all heading there. But it's like, I don't know, maybe a sensitive topic for me in, in horror. No, totally. Well, I, I do think it's like we look at old people as being the closest to the grave, right? So it's like... <laughs> The nearest thing to a corpse is somebody who looks extremely old. Right. And so it's like constant like harbinger of the end coming. Right. But um, I don't know. I think there's like an aspect to Memento Mori where you could just be like, yeah. And that means that we should fucking 
ride this to the wheels come off and try to like enjoy this instead of being scared of it. And just like if we embraced elders and old folks more in our community, there'd be less of a generalized like horror around being old, I think. Oh, absolutely. We'd... Yeah. I'm and actually that... wearing a Grim Reaper shirt. Hilarious. <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things where like our cultural attitude comes out through the films that we make, not necessarily that the film is telling us to feel a way about this. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's reflected the way that we already feel as a culture about age is reflected Mm. in these films like you said it's like that's people think of that as close to death it's spooky um yeah yeah, like the idea that like just a member of our society is spooky (laughs) so funny i know (laughs) which is like i think what's kind of exciting about it because i think about getting older and being like that means i'll never have to participate in like the thing that we're doing currently and i can just be like great I'm just a scary witch all the time and there's no getting around it. I feel like that seems like such a release. Totally. I mean, I think a lot of women look forward to that. <laughs> yeah.